Welcome to the Palmwood Podcast, part of the teaching ministry of Palmwood Church in Oviedo, Florida, where we love God extravagantly, love people with humility, and mentor others to do the same. Here's Pastor John with an introduction for this week's message. Thanks, David. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the podcast. This week, we're starting a new series, Know What You Believe. I must admit, as a pastor, there is one thing that has concerned me for much of my career. I know of way too many truly born-again, well-meaning Christians. These are people who attend church regularly, who really cannot articulate what they say they believe. They recite creeds on Sunday morning, but they can't explain from the scriptures why they hold the convictions they espouse. This is really not good. I'm convinced this is one of the main reasons the American church today is struggling. If we don't really know what we believe, we cannot successfully fulfill the church's mandate to make disciples. What's worse, the world looks at us and sees us as hypocritical because we're talking like Christians, but we don't have the biblical foundation to fully live out our faith. We need to know what we believe, and that's the purpose of this new Sunday message series. We really hope it's a blessing to you. Um, I'm going to move into the the message now, and I'm uh, normally we would read the scripture and then go in. I, I'm I'm doing something a little differently today. I actually. Um, I hesitated about this, and I decided, no, I'm going to go ahead and do it. We're starting with a history lesson today. Um, that's not the way I normally do things in the sermon time. I like to focus on the scriptures themselves, but this little bit of history about the uh, Apostles' Creed, I think, will help us better understand the message that I'm bringing in a moment. So I'm going to read the scripture in just a moment. Um, many of you have heard me say, those of you who, who know me, um, you definitely have heard me expressed this before, but there are three main things that are lacking in the North American church to our peril as a church. The first is we don't read the Bible as we should, and we've talked a lot about that of late because we've been doing the immersed Bible reading experience to try and counteract that in the church. The second thing is we don't pray and intercede as we should. Uh, the American church just simply does not pray like it used to pray, and it shows. And the third is that we don't make disciples as we should. I would submit to you that I believe all three of these things are symptoms of something else. And the something else I believe is that people who are in the church, people who call themselves Christians, um, do not have a clear understanding of the very basics of the Christian faith. I'm going to take it one step further, being that we are um, experiencing the hysteria in our nation over the coronavirus. I would submit to you that the, the COVID-19 fear that we see all around us is huge because people all around us, including Christians around us, are defaulting to the idea that the virus is more powerful than God. 
Now, I know that there's people maybe here and maybe online that are watching. They go, oh, no, 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 that's not true. If we trusted God the way we're supposed to, we would not be afraid of the coronavirus, period. And so the fact that so many Christians are reacting in fear tells me we really don't trust God. Otherwise, in trusting God, we would simply take the proper precautions and we would be a people of peace. It's the way it would be. Knowing what we believe, having a sure and biblical foundation of our faith changes everything. And so for the next several weeks, actually a few months here as it all unfolds, we are going to be looking at the historic creed, the Apostles' Creed, as a framework to help us focus in on the rudimentary and critical pieces of the Christian faith that we need to not just know in our heads, but fully live, believe in our hearts and walk out with our hearts as believers in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I would just ask, Lord Jesus, that you would take anything that is of me or in me that would cause me to stumble in the preaching of your word today or would, would distract, move it out of the way, Lord, in, in the name of Jesus. And by your Holy Spirit, may you be our teacher and our guide as we look to your word today. And Father, as we look at even at this little bit of history at the beginning, Lord, help us see how uh, Christian history, while it is not canon of Scripture, is very helpful in understanding why certain things are so important in our faith. Holy Spirit, guide us through this process today. And may we walk out of here not only with a better understanding of why we're going to study the basics of the faith, but excited to do so. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I don't know how many of you liked history in high school. I'm going to try and make this more interesting, and it's short, so stick with me, all right? There are three early creeds that have helped to define historic Christian orthodoxy. Now, orthodoxy is a big $10 theological word, so let me define it for you. When we say something is orthodox, orthodox actually means right worship. Ortho, right, doxy, praise, worship. So doxology, the, the song of praise that some churches would sing. Orthodox means right praise or right worship. So we believe right so that we can worship right. Do you, is everybody with me? You follow me? That's orthodox. That would be, so there's, there's a church that's called the Orthodox Church. They're called the Orthodox Church because their premise is they are following orthodoxy. That's, that's why they adopted the name so many generations ago, a long, long time ago. So Christian orthodoxy is a good thing. Christian orthodoxy is having a solid foundation for the faith. And in the midst of establishing this orthodoxy over the history of the church these last 2,000 plus years, there are three creeds in particular. There's actually hundreds of creeds, but there's three creeds in particular that have helped to really build that foundation. The first and the oldest is called the Apostles' Creed. It actually was originally called the Roman Creed, 
It has roots going back to about 100 A.D., and it was a response to the heretical teaching of Gnosticism. There's another $10 theological word for you. I'm going to describe that in a minute, so don't worry about it. It's not going to be on the test, but, <laughs> but we'll talk about what Gnosticism is in just a moment. The second one was the Nicene Creed from 325 A.D., and that was a response to a heresy being taught by a man named Arius, who, among other things, questioned the divinity of Jesus. And so if you go through and you read, and there's some churches actually that recite the Nicene Creed every Sunday. The Nicene Creed, one of the things, one of the tenets of the Nicene Creed is that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. It it affirms both his humanity and his divinity because those two things are non-negotiable. And then there was in 451, about 100 years later, the definition of Chalcedon, or some call it the the Creed of Chalcedon. And this simply reaffirmed the conclusions of the Nicene Creed, particularly addressing a new heresy that had emerged around bad teaching about the incarnation of Christ, Christ becoming man. And so the Chalcedon definition went in and addressed that specifically by reaffirming the Nicene Creed from 100 years previous. So you have what we call the Apostles' Creed, originally called the Roman Creed, but now it's called the Apostles' Creed. You have the Nicene Creed, and you have the definition of Chalcedon. The Apostles' Creed, which is the framework that we're going to be using in this series, has clear roots in the original apostolic teaching. So those of you that have the printed notes, some of you may be looking online as well or on the app, you can scroll up. I've got the Apostles' Creed printed in the notes. I'm going to do that each week so that you're able to take it home with you as you go. But I just I want to read through this again. We did this as the call to worship, but I want to do this again. And I want you to focus in on what is said. So we're not going to recite it. I want you just to listen as I read it. We're going to focus in on what is said. In each case, the phrases start with the words, I believe. So we're saying this is... Our conviction. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And basically saying, I believe that He is the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. What does Lord mean? Master, right. Our Master, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So His conception was both divine and human, right? He suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, he died, and he was buried, and he descended into hell. That that phrase there, a lot of people are bothered by that, but I'm going to show you when we get there, not today, but when we get to that passage, I'm going to show you in Scripture where it says that, that he did that. The third day he rose again from the dead and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, from that position of authority, he will come to judge both the living and the dead. In the old-fashioned version or the old English version of this, it says the quick and the dead, but quick simply means living, the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Here's another phrase that bothers people, the Holy Catholic Church. Notice Catholic here is with a small c. That's an important distinction. Gail and I talked about this whether we were going to use this word or not. And I said, no, actually, it is the right word. The problem is is that most people are confused about what that word means. The word Catholic simply means universal. 
So it is the right word. We say the Catholic Church with a small c. We're talking about the worldwide church. Frankly, we're talking about the worldwide church even from the past, the present, and into the future. All those who are believers in Jesus are part of the Catholic with a small c church. So it really, it's a good word. I understand it's confusing, but that's why we want to explain what that means. The communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Do you know what amen means? It means so be it or make it so. So we have the declaration of what we believe, and we end with saying, make it so. Just like John, those of you who like Star Trek, Jean-Luc Picard right there, you know, when he gives a command, he says, make it so. <laughs> That's the way it is. We want it to be that way. And so the Apostles' Creed has roots clearly in the original apostolic teaching. Every one of these affirmations that is made is given. It is directly from the teaching of the 12 apostles in the, the letters, in, the, in the, the history of Acts, or, or it may come directly from the mouth of Jesus himself. But every one of these affirmations that we are saying we believe in these things comes directly from the apostles or from Jesus. They are foundational to the faith. They are non-negotiable. They are from the scriptures. They make up what we affectionately call the essentials of the faith. Some of you, maybe in your, your Christian walk, you've heard this phrase. It's, it's, it's repeated by several different denominations. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, diversity. In all things, charity. Have you heard that before? So in the essentials, in the non-negotiables, we want to have complete unity. But there's no separation among us in those things that are, are absolutely non-negotiable. In the essentials. In the, the non-essentials, diversity. So a non-essential, I'm not going to get into a lot of, you know, down a, a bunny trail here, but a non-essential would be, does your church serve wine or juice in communion? Do you baptize by sprinkling or by immersion? People's salvation does not hinge on those kinds of things. Those are more traditional for different groups, and, and we can have great diversity on those matters of the faith. But now if you say there is no Trinity, we've got to have a conversation. You follow what I'm saying? Okay. So these are the essentials of the faith. The Apostles' Creed is believed uh, to be a formal response to Gnosticism. Now let's talk about Gnosticism because Gnosticism actually has roots all the way back in, actually its roots go back before the time of Christ, but it really erupted in the first century in response to the teaching of the 12 apostles. Uh, Gnosticism says that humans are divine souls trapped in a non-divine existence, an ordinary body, material. They say, and this is where things get dicey for them, they say that the account of the creation in Genesis chapter 1 is a lie. And the reason they say that is they believe that a good God could not have created something that is so evil, the world around us. So you, you can see where their thinking comes from, but it's not biblical. It's not biblical. So there's some Gnostic, Gnostics that saw Jesus 
as sent by the holy God to bring gnosis, which is the Greek word for knowledge. So to bring knowledge, to bring understanding to the world so that they could be set free from all this material sinful stuff. Now, as Gnosticism continued to grow in the first century, they got to the place, and Paul actually addresses this in some of his letters, they got to the place where they believed, well, because my flesh is sinful, it's only my spirit that is holy and is going to live on forever, I can do in my body whatever I want. And, of course, Paul says, oh, time out, we're not going there in some of his letters. He, he deals with Gnosticism very directly. The Scripture tells us that our bodies are actually the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what we do in our flesh does matter and that we must bring that into surrender to the Lord Jesus as well. But that's not what the Gnostics taught. So in response to, to this, this growing problem of Gnosticism, the church fathers got together and they looked at what the apostolic teaching was and they said, look, we need to collect this teaching together in one formal statement that goes right for the jugular of, of Gnosticism. And that's what happened. And so the first expression that we have of the Apostles' Creed um, was found in about 100 A.D., somewhere around 100 A.D. Um, and it morphed and it changed a little bit along the way. Um, but we'll, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. The Apostles' Creed was originally developed in Rome. While components of the creed were already being recited as the church grew in the first century, and I'm going to show you some of those, they're, they're actually in the scripture. All those, those pieces of it are already there. They're in the scriptures. Um, by the end of the second century, they were pretty much collected together. These sayings, these statements were collected together in Rome, and they are very similar to the statement that we have today in English. Um, the first place that we have the whole creed recited and published formally uh, is actually, here's a, here's a long one for you. you don't, again, this is not going to be in the test, but it's, it's known as the Interrogatory Creed of Hippolytus Apost Apostolic Tradition, <laughs> which was published in 215 A.D. So here's the point. The, the, the Apostles' Creed has roots going back to 100 A.D. and was already formally published by, by 215 A.D. It's been around basically from the beginning. This is not something new. The Apostles' Creed had many regional variants over its first 600 years, basically because if you look at the history, there were different nuggets of bad teaching in different places around the world. And so those who were solid Christians would bring that part of the Apostles' Creed to bear on what their local bad teaching was. And so you have written out some various, some variants, you know, around the world. But by the time we come to around 700 A.D., the church at large now adopts what they call the Textus Receptus, the Textus Receptus, and it gives us the form that we are now pretty used to. This is the statement that has been held with conviction by Western Christianity for 1,300 years. And it really hasn't changed since then. That alone should tell you something about how important this is. A unique bit of trivia, it appears this statement, the Textus Receptus uh, version, 
appears to have been first published in southwest France by the Roman Catholic Church between 710 and 724 A.D. But the bottom line is this. The Apostles' Creed has from that point on been the basic framework for the faith for those who espouse and want to walk out biblical Christianity. And so it is correct to say if it violates the Apostles' Creed, it violates biblical Christianity. That, is, that would be a true statement. It's not that the creeds are, are better than the Bible. It's just that they are the framework that we teach what it is that, that we believe, and it makes them very valuable. So the term creedal, which we will probably use on and off throughout this series, describes a life or practice that is rooted in the historic creeds of Christianity, specifically the three that I mentioned. In our case, when I use the word creedal, most times it's going to be talking about the creed we're studying, which is the Apostles' Creed. Historically, when someone says that they are a creedal Christian, it means that they hold these clear biblical historic tenets of the Christian faith to be non-negotiable. It's a standard it's a, it's a litmus test, if you will. And it means that we have, uh, no matter what our denominational stripe might be, we have significant agreement to live and work together, to fellowship together and to minister together in the name of Christ. Let me give you an example of this. Many of you are, are aware of this because you've watched it over the last few years. Father John Davis is an Episcopal priest. He has his own parish, um, regardless of what you may think of what the Episcopal Church is doing today, in Central Florida there are a number of people that are still creedal Christians within the Episcopal Church. They still hold to these historic truths of Scripture. Bishop Jason Quinones from Core Faith Church here in town is Pentecostal charismatic in his approach to the scriptures. Many of you know that my two greatest friends in Oviedo are Father John Davis and Jason Quinones. Neither of those traditions look anything like my background and my tradition. And yet, we are all creedal brothers in Christ. You follow? So someone who's coming out of the Episcopal Church and someone who's coming from a Pentecostal background can have fellowship and partner in ministry with a John Kimball and a Michael Brinkley who come out of the congregational tradition because on things like the Apostles' Creed, we are of one mind, of one heart, of one conviction, serving one God in the power of one spirit for his glory. Now, there's a lot of things we differ on. There's a lot. But they're all non-essential. You see how that works? So what we want to talk about over the next several weeks, months, is what is non-negotiable for believers in Jesus Christ. Now, I told you there are many creeds that are expressed in the New Testament. Some of them are very simple, one sentence. Others are, are more in-depth. 
I'm going to list a whole bunch of them here very quickly. Uh, we will be, be probably giving some press to these as we go along. If you would like to have this list, if you can't write it down fast enough, you can either watch the video later or uh, just email me, and I'd be very happy to, to send these to you because these are the bits and pieces around the apostolic teaching of the New Testament that are formed into the, the classic creeds that we follow. Uh, John 1, verses 1 through 5, verses 10 through 14, and verses 16 through 18. Acts 8, 37. Romans 1, 3 and 4, and Romans 10, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Colossians 1, 13 through 20. And some suggest you would have to add to that also uh, Colossians 2, verses 9 through 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. 1 Timothy 3, 16. 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 14. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. And I haven't even named them all. You see, there, are, there were already, in the first century, there were already accepted statements that were recited in many cases as this is what we believe. You know that the Jews had a creed way back in the time of Abraham. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Jesus, when asked what the first and greatest commandment is, what does he do? He recites a creed <laughs> to answer the question. It was their creed. You see, so this idea of having a steadfast, immovable statement that we can commit to our heart to guide us as we live as, as believers in Jesus Christ of things that are non-negotiable, it is so helpful. One of the problems I think that we face is that many of our, our North American brothers and sisters in Christ today don't have such an anchor. They've not been taught such an anchor. And so when it comes to really knowing what the non-negotiables are, they might have one or two, but they really don't have the breadth that they need. And so their foundation is not as strong as it should be. So when a crisis like coronavirus hits the nation, even Christians respond in fear because they don't have the foundation of the word in their life that they should have. I'm not questioning their salvation. I'm just saying they haven't been discipled to, to have this kind of foundation that they need in their lives. And that's why, actually, that's why we're doing this message, this, this series of messages. So we've got the historical context for the creed. We're now going to use that over the next several weeks to better understand and articulate um, our faith through these, these statements. So now I want to talk about what it looks like to live a creedal life. And for that, we are going to go to the Apostle Paul. There is one major creed that uh, I didn't put in my list because we're going to study it today, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read that now. Um, is the one in here is NLT? No, it's NIV. NIV, okay, because I'm reading out of the NIV. So um, can, can you bounce back to the, the scripture so they've got it up now? Thank you, David. So I'm reading, now actually I'm reading out of, this, this has been my preaching Bible for over 30 years. This is the NIV 1984. There are sometimes some differences between that and the NIV, which was revised in 2011. They're both very reliable translations. It's just that the language has changed. So they, they updated some of the, the terms. Don't let that throw you. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. 
This is Paul now speaking to the Corinthian Christians. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Hear the words of conviction? So let's move on. By this gospel, you were saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. For what I passed on to you is of first importance, non-negotiable, you hear that? That Jesus Christ, or Christ, died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. It's going to become important in a minute, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No. I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it, is, it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. Paul begins here in verses 1 and 2 by reminding them of their gospel foundation. This is really critical. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of all Christian theology. Theology being the study of God, everything that we know about God, everything we understand about God, everything that comes out of the scriptures. The gospel is the foundation of all Christian theology. All of our Christian doctrine, everything that we believe, everything that we espouse, I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm beating a dead horse, but I want to make sure we really understand this. All Old Testament theology. So all of the understanding about God that we get from the Old Testament looks forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. All of it. All of it. And all New Testament theology, everything that we believe that comes out of the Scriptures, stands firm or rests firm on the bedrock foundation of the cross of Jesus Christ. Are you all with me? Paul actually teaches in a couple of his letters that the crucifixion is the primary non-negotiable. We've got we've to preach Jesus and him crucified. We have to. It's the pivotal point of theology. Christ crucified is a non-negotiable. So Paul starts there. And here's what's really important about this. Because we have not done a good job in the, the church, particularly in North America, but to some extent the church of, of the Western world, uh, United States, Canada, Europe, people now think that the gospel is a message of salvation. Anybody here today, don't be afraid to admit it, because I'm going to blow it up, but it, it, I'm not judging you if that's what you believe. Anybody here ever thought, well, the gospel's a message of salvation? 
the gospel is not a message of salvation. Salvation is true, but it's true because of the gospel. The gospel is not that message. People think that the gospel is a message that tells us we get to live forever in glory with God when we die if we believe in Jesus Christ. Friends, that's a true statement, but that is not the gospel. It's true because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now we've got to say, well, okay, preacher, <laughs> what's the gospel? The gospel is simply this, that Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns. Because Jesus reigns, you and I can be saved. Because Jesus reigns, you and I can have complete forgiveness of our sins. Because Jesus reigns, you and I get to live with the heavenly Father in his glory for all eternity. All those things that people misconstrue with the gospel, they're all true. I'm not saying they're not true, but they're not the gospel. They're true because of the gospel. The gospel is Jesus is Lord. That's the gospel. He's master. And so the gospel is a statement about the lordship of Christ. The gospel is a statement that tells us the foundation. This is why Paul emphasizes the importance of what he has taught them. It's based upon the gospel. He has to start there. It is important to know not just with the head but with the heart the foundational truths about Christ and his gospel. The single most important thing, friends, that any believer in Jesus Christ anywhere in the world needs to know from the scriptures is that Jesus Christ reigns supreme. There is nothing greater or more powerful than our Jesus, period. And I stand before you and I tell you, that's a non-negotiable. We all together? So listen to the words of Paul as he writes to the Christians in Colossae, the Colossians. This comes from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This is one of those statements. This is one of those creedal things that got to be repeated now by the church after Paul wrote it. Listen to his words. He, speaking of Jesus here, he is the image of the invisible God. Hang on just a second. I don't want to get off on a tangent. But do you know that the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is a created being? He's not God. That's part of what they teach. And so they have changed this one verse to read, he is in the image in their Bible. They changed their Bible. He is in the image of the invisible God. That's not what Scripture teaches. You and I are in the image of the invisible God. He made us in his image. That's what Scripture says. But what the Scripture says is he is the image of the invisible God. Listen to what Paul says. The firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, if Jesus was not who we say he is, we are all in a lot of trouble because this world can't even hold together. 
He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead. Listen, Paul says it, so that in everything he might have supremacy. He is the supreme ruler and reigner. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. God's fullness dwells in Jesus. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The cross of Christ is the pivotal point of all Christian theology. Do you see? Jesus reigns. That's the gospel. And all those other things that we confuse with the gospel are true. I'm not saying they're not true, but they are fringe benefits of the, the gospel itself that our God reigns. You know, we're in the South. You can say amen. Okay, just, just, just saying. <laughs> all right. Hallelujah, that's right. Preach it, sister. Notice now that Paul roots his teaching to the scriptures themselves. This is critical. All creeds have to, have their, have to find their roots in the scriptures. They have to. The scriptures are the foundation of our faith and of our life, and so they also are the foundation of the creeds, the, the, the biblical creeds. Remember that the creeds are generally produced to combat heresy down through the ages. There's always some big mess up of a teaching, and so a creed comes along to address that particular heresy. The truth of Scripture is the key to understanding the Christian life. So, um, one of the reasons that creeds, that understanding creeds and living by the, the scriptures as reflected in the creeds, the framework of the creeds is so important is because when people deny the authority of the scriptures, we always get into trouble. Every single religious movement since the cross of Christ that starts out as Christian and following Jesus that gets into trouble, always the first step, always the first step of getting into trouble is denying the authority of the scriptures. As soon as you begin to, to depart from the authority of the scriptures, now you get into trouble. And so, you know, we're living in a day when there's many different denominations that are at war within each other. I mean, it's, it's amazing to hear the things that they're fighting over. And, and many of us may look from the outside and go, why are you even having that dialogue? Where did that come from? Well, 20, 30, 40 years ago, they made a decision to say, this is a suggestion instead of this is the bedrock of our faith. And as soon as you do that, the slippery slope begins, and it's only a matter of time before something, unbiblical heresy, begins to derail them. Paul recounts, actually recites, specific non-negotiable truths about the Savior. Again, rooting everything in the Scriptures. Verse 4. We're going to look at these statements in more detail as part of the series, so I'm going to go through them rather quickly today. But Christ died for our sins. It's a non-negotiable. He was buried and rose from the dead on the third day. Non-negotiable. 
He was seen by many real witnesses, etc., etc., etc. Paul is, is giving his creedal statement. Speaking of witnesses, Paul then in verses 5 through 7 gives evidence of his, spa- his statement's veracity. At the time that Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth, he's talking about how Jesus appeared to over 500 people in one meeting one time. You realize that at the time that Paul is writing this, most of those people are probably still alive. The apostles, many of the apostles are still alive. In other words, Paul is writing this to the, the Corinthian Christians. They could go and proverbially get on the bus. There was no bus back then, I know. But they could, they could go and travel to where those people were. They can talk to those people who had firsthand knowledge of Jesus' appearance. See? We can trust that the scriptures are true because at the time that they were giving these, these testimonies, it could be checked out. And it did. See? It's trustworthy. You don't think that, that somebody was trying to stop this movement of the church in the first century didn't go and, and check those sources out? They did. In some cases, we have records of that. So the veracity of what Paul's saying is absolutely provable in that first century as he's writing to the church. And then in verse 8, Paul ends with his own testimony. This is actually really important because, in fact, these next two points really need to be taken together. We find our Christian story in what we believe, friends. That's just it. We find our Christian story in what we believe. If our belief is not built on a strong biblical foundation, then neither is our story and neither is our witness. We'll start selling people a bill of goods that really isn't the gospel. And it happens a lot. Because there's a lot of people, well-meaning people, I'm not saying that they're trying to be evil, but because their foundation isn't right, their message isn't right. You see what I'm saying? It's really important. Paul finds his identity in Christ through his creedal statement, verses 8 through 10. We also find our identity in what we believe. You've heard me say it many times that most Christians in North America do not find their identity in Christ. They typically find it in their job or their role. Because they don't have a good foundational handle on what they believe. I love this. Paul's self-importance is eradicated because of his belief. When we have a solid foundation, knowing what we believe, several things happen. First, we have a more unshakable confidence of our Christian faith. Second, we tend to know the scriptures better. Third, our testimony is empowered. Fourth, our witness is both clearer and more fruitful. Fifth, our identity in Christ is clear and immovable. And we have a right perspective on who we are and what Christ has done for us. Paul, out of all the apostles, if anybody had bragging rights of all the apostles, it was Paul. He was of the right tribe. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was extremely knowledgeable. He studied under Gamaliel, which was like the Harvard of of divinity schools back then. He had everything going for him. And what does he say here in today's passage about himself? I'm like one abnormally born. I'm the least of all apostles. In fact, I shouldn't even be called an apostle because I persecuted God's church. He has a clear understanding of who he is. And then he goes on to say, but because Christ lives in me, look at what God can accomplish through me. It's a right perspective. Over the next few months, we're going to take the Apostles' Creed line by line, statement by statement, and we're going to dig into these critical, non-negotiable truths. The creeds are not more important than the scriptures. Please don't take that away from what I'm not saying that. I am not saying that. But 
they do provide a framework for us to understand the non-negotiables of the Christian faith. So as we go through this process, I'm going to encourage you to do several things. And I'm actually, next week, what I'm about to tell you here will actually be in the notes next week. So you don't have to feverishly all write it down. It'll be there for you. The first thing is, read or recite the Apostles' Creed every single day while we're going through this exercise. All right? I'm going to print it right there in your notes for you. You can, you can glance at it every single day. Take the creedal topic for that week and study it in your personal Bible time every single day. And if you need help knowing how to do that, you can ask me, ask Pastor Michael, ask Bob, ask Stephen. There's several of us in this room that can help you do that. And then consider the following questions as you do that. If this statement is true, what does it mean for my confidence in Christ as my Savior and my King? If this statement is true, what does it mean for my testimony, my life story that I share with others so that they might know Christ better? If this statement is true, how does that move me closer to finding my identity in Christ alone? And finally, if this statement is true, what does it tell me about God's love for me and my part in his mission? Friends, my prayer in this is, by the time we're done with this series, every one of us will have a greater, stronger assurance of what we believe because it changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the testimony of the apostles. And Father, thank you for church fathers down through the ages that have combated bad teaching by putting together these frameworks, these creeds, so the believers like us could stand firm on things that we know have stood the test of time as absolutely non-negotiable. Help us in this exercise to know and to embrace that when it comes to the scripture, there is absolute truth and to live according to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for the Palmwood Podcast. If you'd like more information about Palmwood Church and its ministry, see our website at palmwoodchurch.com. Have a blessed day.